Welcome, everyone. This is Treks to Nowhere. Late on a Monday evening in November of 2018, I was making my weekly drive back up to the small village of Queechy, Vermont, from the greater Boston area. I managed to somehow time it just right so that I was navigating north up Highway 3 during the worst of the winter weather. I suppose I'm not always the most prudent when it comes to checking the forecasts. As I was white-knuckling the slick and iced-covered roads, I had the local NPR stationed tuned on the radio. On any given Monday night in the Boston area, the show On Point would air at 8 p.m. on the station WBUR. Normally, I don't pay too much attention to these broadcasts, but when I heard the program's introduction on this particular night, I immediately took notice. The show's topic for this particular evening would be Henry Worsley, and more specifically, his solo transantarctic expedition. The show featured the author, David Gran, discussing his new book about Henry's Traverse titled The White Darkness, as well as various interviews and discussions revolving around the two men who were presently attempting the same Traverse. Listening to the program brought back some vivid memories and powerful emotions. For context, I think it's important to start this story with one of the most famous and well-known explorers, Sir Ernest Shackleton. I think it's fair to say that a good portion of the general public has at least heard of the story of Shackleton. Entire books have been written about him, documentaries have been made, and the overall magnitude and heroism of his Antarctic journeys will live on in history as some of the greatest feats of endurance and perseverance. For those of you that maybe don't know the whole story or who just need a little reminder, the two-minute elevator version goes something like this. After first serving as an officer on Robert Falcon Scott's Antarctic Discovery Expedition around the turn of the 20th century, Shackleton then set out to be the first to the South Pole. Between 1907 and 1909, he set out on his Nimrod expedition to undertake this endeavor first setting up camp at a place called Cape Roids. After battling horrible conditions on his way to the Pole, Shackleton and his team of Adams, Marshall, and Wild made the very difficult decision to turn back just 97 and a half nautical miles from the geographic South Pole. This decision was driven not just by the conditions and deteriorating health of the crew, but because they had determined that there simply wasn't enough food remaining to make it to Pole and return safely back to Cape Roids. A well-known and now famous photo was taken at the moment they turned around on January 9, 1909. But then, just a few years later, before Shackleton could make another honest attempt, a Norwegian named Rald Amundsen would take the honor of the first to reach the Pole, beating out another team by just a few weeks, that was led by Scott. When Shackleton learned the news that the pole had been conquered, he set his sights on a new quest, to be the first to transect the entire continent of Antarctica on foot. Well, on skis, technically. His plan was to land on the Weddell Sea side of Antarctica, 
traverse up to the pole, and then come back down the Ross Ice Shelf side, ending back on Ross Island, near present-day McMurdo Station and Cape Roids. This is when the famous story of endurance comes into the picture. Shackleton's main party never even got started as his vessel became locked in sea ice and drifted around the Weddell Sea. Eventually, Shackleton and his crew made it to the remote and inhospitable Elephant Island, where they were marooned after their primary ship, the Endurance, sank. Months later, and in a desperate attempt to save his ailing crew, Shackleton selected a handful of men and traversed over 800 miles of rough seas in the diminutive James Caird lifeboat to eventually make it to the island of South Georgia. From there, he was able to finally reach a small whaling station and rally up assistance to organize a rescue of his crew back on Elephant Island. Many months later, he did return to recover his entire crew, and miraculously, not a single member of the expedition that was on Elephant Island perished. Where this story comes back around full circle to the NPR broadcast that night that came on during my drive up to Vermont is this. One of the members of Shackleton's original crew that was on board the James Caird lifeboat was a New Zealand navigator named Frank Worsley. Present-day Henry Worsley and the subject of the NPR story had claimed to be a distant relative of Frank and as such played a large part in motivating him to take on his various Antarctic adventures. Henry's eventual trans-Antarctic expedition would end up being modeled directly after the route and expedition planned by Sir Ernest Shackleton himself, which included Frank Worsley. Despite Shackleton's trans-Antarctic crossing attempt being over a century prior, and with many since completing the same journey, no one had yet to complete it entirely solo and self-supported. What this means is that no one had yet managed to cross the entirety of Antarctica following Shackleton's route and pulling 100% of their supplies that they'd need from the first day using no pre-dropped supply caches. And this was ultimately Henry's goal to follow the original planned route of his ostensibly distant relative, Frank, and to do it 100% self-supported. I knew nothing of Henry Worsley or his expedition that took place in late 2015. At that time, all I knew was that after six previous Antarctic deployments, I was finally going to be headed to the South Pole Station. I had been wanting to make it to Pole ever since first setting foot on the continent back in 2008. I did come fairly close to visiting South Pole back in 2011 during a deployment to a place called Union Glacier. My flight out of the camp back to McMurdo Station needed to stop for fuel on continent, and the flight crew had to decide between either stopping at the Waste Divide Field Camp or at South Pole Station. Nine out of ten times that decision would have been South Pole given the typical weather at Waste Divide and the greater fuel reserves at Pole, but this time, there was actually better weather at Waste Divide. So, with my hopes for a quick South Pole boondoggle dashed, I was convinced I'd never get another chance. 
But just four years later, I would be invited to participate as a science team member for the new South Pole Ice Coring Project. After months of planning and several medical exams, I managed to finally get approved for a two-month deployment to 90 degrees south. Needless to say, I was ecstatic. While stationed at Pole, I worked on a team that was responsible for drilling and logging a new ice core down to a depth of about 1,700 meters. Given the annual accumulation at South Pole and the amount that the ice sheet thins and compresses under its own weight, that ice at 1,700 meters equates to an age of about 50,000 years. This meant that we'd be able to look at climate trends all the way back into the previous ice age and then quantify just how much the continent warmed through the transition into our present interglacial period known as the Holocene. While on station, our group of 12 scientists and drilling engineers worked non-stop six days a week over multiple shifts. It was a demanding and exhausting schedule that resulted in only one day off a week for recreation. Most of us, though, were so tired on that day off that we typically just napped or read books. I would often use those days to write postcards or catch up on some overdue research. But given my proclivity for outdoor excursions, I was also often seen sneaking out for a quick stint of skiing or running outside the station, despite the wildly frigid temperatures. On one particular Saturday night, as we were coming off of the last shift of the week, our ice coring group received a rather unique invitation. As we began to unwind and settle in for the evening, the two camp managers for the nearby Antarctic Logistics and Expeditions Camp, or ALE Camp, stopped over to socialize a bit and share a few drinks. The ALE Camp is an independent and privately owned tourist camp located about one kilometer away from the primary science station at South Pole. They operate a contract with an on-ice flight crew that flies small ski-equipped planes in an effort to bring VIP tourists to the station. If you recall, I spoke about these tourists all the way back in Episode 3 when discussing geographic poles. In practice, anyone can register and pay for a private visit to South Pole with ALE, but typical costs for an hour-long visit run about $50,000, and that cost doesn't include any of the flights or expenses to get to the southern tip of South America first. On this Saturday night, the ALE camp had emptied out and so the minimal staff that operates the camp were all alone for a couple of days until the next tourist group came through. They asked us all if we wanted to take the one-kilometer walk over to the camp after lunch on Sunday to get a tour of the camp. To me, this seemed like somewhat of a silly thought since their camp really only consisted of a couple of small collapsible buildings and a few tents. But normally, the ALE camp is completely off-limits to any research staff, scientists, or personnel from the primary South Pole station, so we graciously accepted their invitation for the next day and looked forward to seeing their camp. The following day after lunch, a group of us made the 10-minute walk down to the ALE camp from the primary Amundsen-Scott research station. 
Upon arriving at the ALE camp, it was quite clear that it operated with minimal frills. Their camp consisted of only two collapsible operations buildings not much bigger than large tents, and then a grouping of smaller camping tents for the tourists that opt to spend the night at Pole, for an extra fee, of course. I remember distinctly that the walk over to the ALE camp that day was slightly more difficult than normal due to what is often referred to as flat light. What this means is simply that the sky was completely overcast and gray, creating nearly zero contrast or shadows on the surface of the snow. Because of these conditions, it's almost impossible to see any surface features on the ground. It's very unsettling and can really mess with your depth perception and create an intense sense of vertigo. It can feel like you're essentially floating over some kind of void space with no discernible interface or boundary between the sky and the ground. This, of course, often leads to a lot of tripping and awkward walking. On a snowmobile, it can even lead to much more serious wipeouts, especially considering that you often can't see notable bumps in the surface. In Antarctica, when the wind blows over the surface of the ice sheets, it can create small, elongated snow dunes known as sastrugi, which can be particularly hazardous to unsuspecting researchers, particularly in flat white conditions. I've witnessed many a careless researcher launch over these sastrugi while on a snowmobile. Such airborne adventures typically didn't end well. Our group was invited inside into the primary ALE tent. As we sat there, the camp manager told us some rather ridiculous stories from some of their tourist guests. We traded stories back and forth and some laughs and then spent some time talking about some of the interesting science projects that were underway at the South Pole. We laid out the science objectives of our ice coring project and how it was progressing so far. As we were all sharing our stories, the other camp manager came inside the tent and told us all something remarkable. He said, Hey everyone, today is your lucky day. Henry just called us a short bit ago on the satellite phone, and he should be pulling up to camp in about 10 minutes. No one in our group knew who Henry was, so we listened intently for the next few minutes as the camp managers told us about his expedition and what he was trying to accomplish. Henry had been out on his own for over 40 days, marching his way up to the South Pole along the Polar Plateau. They continued to fill us in on who Henry was, some of the amazing things that he'd already done during his life and some of his exploits, and the motivations behind his current expedition. They went on to tell us, because Henry was self-supported, he would not be allowed to take any aid at Pole, but ALE was still nice enough to let him set up his tent in the cluster of tourist tents nearby. Both of the managers told us specifically that we were not allowed to offer him any aid or support, but that we were certainly allowed to talk to him and to listen to whatever stories he wanted to tell us. As they were relaying all this information to us, I simply couldn't believe it. This just felt too much like the most serendipitous chance to meet a true Antarctic explorer. It had to be a practical joke by the ALE camp managers. 
they'd been alone for quite some time, and pulling a practical joke on a scientist was something that I certainly could see them doing. I remember thinking to myself that there was no way we were all just going to stand up, walk out the back door of this small camp tent located at South Pole Station, and see some random guy skiing up to us out of the void, pulling a 200-pound sled. It all just seemed so impossible. Of all the places on Earth, there at South Pole, we were expected to believe that this specific person was just going to appear. The ALE camp managers were clearly messing with us. But then I did stand up and I did walk out the back door. And as gullible as I felt, I just had to check. I had to at least accept the possibility that this could be, after all, a real chance at meeting a genuine Antarctic explorer. I peered intently off into the flat white void in the rough direction that Henry would likely be coming from if the entire ridiculous claim was actually real. As I stared, absolutely sure I'd see nothing but emptiness, I saw it. I saw a faint and almost ghost-like phantom slowly materialize out of the void, right in the place that I was staring. I simply could not believe it. There's no way that this man, who has been solo skiing for over 40 days, just happened to appear out of the nothingness exactly at the moment I was looking for him. But that's exactly what happened. I took a quick photo with my camera just to capture that exact moment and immediately burst back into the tent to let the others know that I saw Henry approaching. Everyone quickly rushed out, and my disbelief at the situation was immediately quelled as others began to agree that they saw him approaching as well. Within just a few minutes, he was up to the camp and had disconnected himself from his sled at one of the marked outdoor campsites. This would now be his home for the night. He talked for a short bit with the camp manager and then walked slowly over to the group of us eager scientists. I'll never forget what he said to us as he first walked up. In a soft, yet relieved tone, he said, I've been alone for quite some time. You are all the first people I've seen in over 40 days, and it is so good to talk to you all. It's so good to talk to anyone. He went on to tell us that the conditions up to the pole were very difficult. The sastrugi were much bumpier than anticipated, and the weather much nastier. This all meant for slow and exhausting days. Because of this, Henry was now a few days behind his planned schedule, which had put him in a rather low mental space. But he went on to explain that he was much more optimistic about the prospect of his remaining journey being ostensibly downhill. Other than a very slight rise over the next few days out of pole up to a place known as Titan Dome, the remainder of his journey would eventually lead back down from about 10,000 feet at pole back to sea level. He looked so visibly tired and battered, but overall in decent shape. But there was something about the way that he talked that carried with it a heavy weight of weariness. 
We all asked him dozens of questions and he was eager to answer and quite simply to talk. I felt a genuine happiness for him as it was clear that he had been missing the company of others. Seeing his eyes light up as he came up to us told me just how much it meant for him to simply see other people. I thought to myself, here was a man who has done so many expeditions and traverses in Antarctica and had spent countless days by himself. He was clearly someone that was perfectly comfortable exploring for long periods of time on his own. Yet seeing us all that day and being able to smile and laugh amongst us even for a short time transformed him into a new man. After some time, we eventually had to part ways to head back to the research station. We all shook his hand and thanked him for the fantastic stories and for inspiring us all. We wished him well and good weather for the rest of his journey, and I took one final photo of him before leaving the ALE camp. As we started the walk back, Henry went back to his sled and set up his tent for the evening. I remember thinking how kind it was of him to spend so much time answering all of our questions when he could have simply been resting. The next morning when I woke from my work shift down at the ice coring site, I learned that Henry had already left a few hours prior. I remember thinking of the incredible story I would have to tell friends and family back home. I would be able to tell them that I got to meet the man who was the first to traverse Antarctica entirely self-supported, right during the middle of his journey. I would get to tell them all that genuine explorers do still exist, and that Henry exemplified that passion for exploration that so many of us are constantly trying to satiate. But sadly, this is not the story I would come to tell. A few weeks later at camp, our crew was wrapping up drilling for the season. We were all celebrating again on a Saturday night when the word came into camp. Henry had made it to within a hundred miles of his final destination, but due to physical complications, had to end his journey short and call for an emergency medical evacuation. His designated flight crew managed to pick him up safely at his location and bring him back to their primary camp at Union Glacier. During the next few days, however, Henry had developed a serious infection and his health continued to deteriorate. He was eventually flown all the way back to Chile and admitted into a hospital for treatment, but by that time, the infection had become too septic and he ultimately succumbed. Henry, the incredibly inspiring man and true modern-day Antarctic explorer that I had met just a few weeks prior, was gone. The news of Henry's passing was quite heavy for our group at South Pole Station. We were all affected by it deeply and thought a lot about that day we all had the honor of meeting him just those few weeks earlier. We held a small and intimate ceremony for Henry that night, lit some candles and shared words and stories. I would come to discover during our makeshift memorial and eulogy for Henry that I was the only one in our group that took any photos the day that he came through camp. A haunting thought came over me that my photos I took that day when chatting with Henry 
may now be the last images of Henry ever taken. It seems somehow fitting that my favorite image I took that day was the one of Henry emerging like a phantom out of the void. I suppose in many ways I like to think of Henry as some kind of Antarctic spirit that just happened to materialize around us that day, and now he simply returned home. A few weeks later, I was traveling back through New Zealand on my way home, and the news of Henry's passing was everywhere. Everyone that I talked to about my experience at Pole spoke of Henry as a sort of national hero. There was a genuine collective sense of sadness everywhere. Today, I think often of Henry, not just of our meeting, but just what he represented to me and to so many others. Quite simply, he was an explorer, a fellow seeker of geographical oddities, wonders, and superlatives. I will never forget that day, Henry. I'll never forget the day that I listened to you recount the incredible details of your journey. So, keep exploring, Henry, and may our paths cross again someday and somehow. Oh, the stories we might share. Thank you so much, everyone, for following along as I paid tribute to Henry Worsley, an inspiring man and genuine Antarctic explorer. In the final episode of this first season of Treks to Nowhere, and on the subject of what it means to be an explorer, I will go back to the first question I asked all the way back in the introduction. What is it that keeps the fire of exploration alive in us all? Take care, everyone, and be safe.